Welcome to the Richie Flow Nutrition Podcast. My name is Cameron Borg. On this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Kerry Gillum. Kerry Gillum is an American investigative journalist, most prominently known for her work exposing the nefarious tactics employed by chemical agriculture companies. She has more than 30 years of experience covering food and agricultural policies and practices, including 17 years as a senior correspondent for Reuters International News Service. She has specialty knowledge about the health and environmental impacts of pervasive pesticide use and industrial agriculture, and has won several industry awards for her work. Her first book, Whitewash, the story of a weed killer, cancer, and the corruption of science, was released in October 2017 and won the coveted Rachel Carson Book Award from the Society of Environmental Journalists, as well as two other awards. Gillum has been asked to speak all over the world about food and agricultural matters, including before the European Parliament in Brussels, the World Forum of Democracy in Strasbourg, and to public officials, organisations and conferences in the US, Canada, Australia, Argentina, France and the Netherlands. She has served as a consultant on and a participant in several documentary TV and film pieces, including the award-winning Poisoning Paradise documentary released in June 2019 by Pierce and Keeley Brosnan. She also served as a story consultant and contributor to the 2022 documentary Into the Weeds by filmmaker Jennifer Baichwal. After leaving Reuters, Kerry spent six years working as a reporter and data researcher for the public health investigative research group US Right to Know. She currently writes as a contributor for The Guardian and is managing editor of The New Lead, that's L-E-D-E, a journalism initiative of the Environmental Working Group. It was an absolute privilege to speak with Kerry as her work is such an important step forward in the fight against the pervasive use of pesticides. She is one of the most important figures in this issue that we are all facing and I strongly believe that we could all benefit from her work. With all that being said, I hope you enjoy the podcast. Kerry, thank you so much for taking some time to speak with me today. Um, I've been a huge fan of your work since I first read uh, Whitewash several years ago. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for um, coming on. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Um, so when when did you first get introduced to, to this idea that you know glyphosate, this um, weed killer that was used worldwide, might be a problem? So, you know, it it was a really long time ago. Um, I was assigned by Reuters in 1998 uh, to move to Kansas, actually, and start writing about agriculture and agricultural practices and these cool new genetically engineered seeds and crops that Monsanto had developed. And they GMO soy and corn and cotton, they were calling them Roundup Ready, because they were designed to be sprayed directly with Roundup, this glyphosate-based herbicide. And uh, farmers, it was supposed to be the, you know, the coolest new thing ever that farmers could spray their entire fields of crops directly over the top with Roundup or glyphosate um, herbicide. And the crops would be great. The crops would be fine and would flourish and the weeds would die. And this was changing agriculture uh, in the United States and and eventually around the world in many different countries. So it was my job uh, by Reuters to really learn everything about that, spend a lot of time with farmers and scientists and with the company, Monsanto and and others. And it just, you know, led me down this path, I guess, over time to find that what Monsanto and and several industry um players were telling us about how wonderful this this chemical was uh, actually 
you know, that that wasn't really true and that there were a lot of problems and both for human health and environmental health. And so it just led me down the rabbit hole, I guess, and led me to a place where I eventually wrote Whitewash and then and then a second book about the litigation that has arisen around glyphosate. So it's been 20 some years, you know, wow. that, that I've been doing this, I guess. So when you first started this project um, in 1998, when you started, um, you know, working with the people in the industry and the farmers themselves, did you have any inkling that, you know, something might be amiss that there was, you know, it sounded a little too good or did you just think that this was going to be a, um, a standard sort of task for you? Yeah, no, I really didn't. I didn't come at it skeptically, um, other than just the normal skepticism that comes with being a journalist. Yep. You know, you don't you don't really take everything. You know, when a company is selling a product, of course, they're going to tell you how wonderful the product is, right? And um, that's just to be assumed. So I did what I've done when I covered the banking industry or the healthcare industry, you know, you, you develop a lot of sources in different places. As I said, I spent a lot of time with, with farmers and learned what worked for them and what didn't, um, what were the benefits, what were the costs. I spent a lot of time learning about the science um, behind the technology, behind the chemical. And that science, as I was developing my knowledge base, the science was also developing because when genetically engineered crops were introduced in the 1990s, glyphosate use then expanded um, because these crops were designed to be used with glyphosate um, very strategically by Monsanto. And so volume and use of Roundup chemicals, glyphosate, expanded just, just insane, an insane amount. Glyphosate became the world's most widely used herbicide and used far more than uh, competitors. And so the science developed um, around that because as more and more people are being exposed and it's used um, you know, more commonly and we're finding residues, then scientists were finding that residues were in the food that we were eating and in the water we were drinking. And eventually even you know, so ubiquitous uh, was the use that glyphosate residues are found in rainfall. Um, so there was really a great um, effort in the scientific community worldwide to understand what this might mean for human health. Was it as safe as Monsanto said or not? And the science started to build in the late 1990s and the 2000s and through the 2000s up to where we are today that no, it actually isn't um, as safe as table salt or safe enough to drink as as was sort of the you know reputation that was developed around this chemical that actually it's been tied to a whole array of cancers, not Hodgkin lymphoma in particular, a blood cancer, as well as reproductive problems, um, you know, endocrine disrupting problems, uh, liver and kidney. So there's been a lot of science develop around this that informed me and did bring me to a place where I feel that I have a very good understanding um, and some skepticism clearly uh, at this point about what the industry says. Yeah. And, and we're talking about Roundup, which is a, a mixture of a lot of different ingredients, but the, the primary one, the active ingredient called glyphosate. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what, what is glyphosate and when was it first synthesized? 
Yeah. So, I mean, glyphosate has been around for a long time um, and it went through various hands, um, you know, in the 50s and 60s uh, until uh, the, the, the chemical companies were trying to find, you know, a use for this molecule. Um, after after the war time ended and we had these chemical companies that had been mostly invested in industrial or, or war oriented um, chemical products, uh, agriculture was sort of the next target and the next big thing. And glyphosate, you know, actually like was a discovery um, by a scientist in, in terms of its weed killing abilities was discovered by a scientist in Monsanto and he won awards for this discovery um, of this novel new mode of action, this novel herbicide uh, that could be so safe um, and kill weeds as so effectively as it does. I mean, it, you know, if anybody's out there has used Roundup or glyphosate, you know, it's, it's remarkable um, at what it does, which is killing living plant tissue, right? Um, and gets into the roots of the plant and, and can move through the plant and uh, really not just kill what is above ground, but also what is below ground, which made it so, so popular. So um, Monsanto introduced it in 1974 uh and you know it's been in use ever since and uh is still as i said before the world's most widely used weed killer and um and you know there are farmers still who swear by it um there have been problems because it's been used so much now that many types of weeds have become resistant and so it's not nearly as effective as it used to be uh we have overused it um if you want to look at it from that perspective um, but but it is still used around the world in many countries, and it is still used with these genetically engineered crops that are designed to to tolerate it or to be sprayed with it. Yeah, ab absolutely. I think um, I can't remember how much it's been used, but it's definitely the most used herbicide um, ever. And my understanding is that uh, it's a water soluble molecule, so once it gets into the environment you can't really get it back there's no really there's no real way to sequester it it's it it gets into the waterways it gets into the air and you kind of just can't really get rid of it and my understanding is that it doesn't really break down uh, as easily as the monsanto scientists would would tell us that that it does is that correct yeah i mean in early on you know that was part of the message from monsanto that it you know breaks down very quickly and doesn't accumulate and um and but that has really been refuted uh, through a number of scientific studies um since then and and it is pretty widely understood now that it is and it has become ubiquitous and yes it's are you us geological survey in the united states which is part of the department of interior of our federal government has done numerous studies to confirm as i said earlier that it's also found in rainfall uh you know it's it's in the water it's in surface waters um it's been found in drinking water it's so common in our environment that even if you don't spray glyphosate yourself or use it you probably have it in your bodily fluids in your urine if you would get that tested a lot of people have done that um it's just it's a chemical that's become very pervasive uh in our world yeah i think you um you wrote a an article maybe last year about how uh, 80 percent of americans that were surveyed at, at one time uh had glyphosate residue in their urine um 
you know, this is a real, this is a real scary thing to think about that, um, you know, even if we're not um, directly consuming it, even though we most likely are, uh, it's still in our drinking water. Uh, it's still probably in the air to some degree. Um, yeah. So, you know, as far as prevalence and use is concerned, is this a more US-based phenomena or is this, you know, a real worldwide issue? Well, certainly, uh, you know, it can be seen as a worldwide issue. Glyphosate is used around the world um, in, in many different countries. You know, there are a handful that have really tried to ban it or discourage its use. Um, and there's been a huge pushback by not only Monsanto, which is actually now owned by a German company. Um, it was founded and based in the U.S. for over 100 years, but sold in 2018 to German-based Bayer, um, but you know, still very much has a U.S. footprint and a U.S. presence um, and and control and influence over U.S. regulators. Um, but when countries do try to ban it, like Mexico is trying to do right now, what we have seen, and I've also written a great deal about this, is the U.S. State Department. Um, and regulatory bodies, our USDA, get involved and try to pressure and threaten that country, which is what they're trying to do now with Mexico. And they've done it with Thailand and other countries. But yeah, glyphosate is popularly used in Australia. It's popular, popularly used throughout South America. Um, you know, Europe, many European countries um, have embraced it. So, um, you know, it is. I mean, Europe is now looking... Uh, at re-registration, meaning they they are taking up the issue this year about whether or not to keep it on the market throughout the European Union. So that's a, a battle right now that's going on. And the U.S. has recently um, said that it is re-registering it as well, that it is, is letting glyphosate continue to stay on the market because they feel that it's so safe. And they agree with Monsanto and, and the industry that uh, this is a needed tool um, that should not be restricted very much. So, yeah, I, I think that's the same point of view that um, that is happening here in Australia. Um, that it's basically an indispensable um, thing. And uh, if I'm if I'm correct, I think uh, glyphosate went off patent in 2007, and it started to be manufactured in China, um, which, because of Australia's close ties with China, uh, we started to get a lot more um, glyphosate product in our country since then. Um, but I know that there are a handful of countries that don't use glyphosate-based herbicides. Um, which countries are those and, and what was their reasoning behind um, saying that this, we don't believe this is safe for our people? Right. Gosh, I can't give you a list right now because it's changed so much. You know, right. France said they were going to ban glyphosate. Uh, Germany said they were going to ban glyphosate. As I said, Thailand said they were going to ban glyphosate. Um, I don't think any of those countries have actually mm. banned glyphosate. Um, you know, Mexico is trying to ban it right now. Um, I don't think, I don't know. I mean, they they seem to be holding to their guns. I don't know if, if uh, and they specifically are citing um, human health concerns. Uh, is it, they're they're trying to ban transgenic corn, uh, GMO corn, and glyphosate. So citing you know the health of their people and that sort of thing. So um, mm. you know it's popular in Canada. Um, 
it's it, <laughs> farmers love it, <laughs> you know, and the industry spends a lot of money and time and energy to make sure that the regulators support it and that the farmer organizations support it. And they basically have tried to put forward the message that, you know, we can't grow food without it, uh, which of course we did before we had glyphosate. Um, It's a highly profitable uh, endeavor. And of course it is so closely tied now to genetically altered seeds, which is a huge um, profit stream for not only Monsanto Bear, but a number of other companies as well that have licensed and developed genetic traits that they tie directly to specific pesticides um, like 2,4-D and dicamba and glyphosate. So uh, there's a a, a very determined um, and powerful push by pesticide companies around the world. There's maybe five or six that are pretty powerful um, to keep pesticides um, as a mainstay for food production around the world. You mentioned earlier about um, Monsanto being purchased by Bayer um, several years ago. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think it was for something like $66 billion. I'm not sure if that's the exact amount now, but um, I've heard some people suggest that that was a bit of a bargain given that Monsanto really has, um, you know, uh, the majority of the world's um, seed uh, and the commodity crops are pretty much under control. Um, did alarm bells ring for you when you when you learned that Bayer was buying Monsanto? You know, the biggest one of the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world, uh, getting into you know uh, chemical agriculture. Yeah, I mean, well, they were already involved in it to a degree, um, but my response. When I about the purchase of Monsanto was, are they out of their minds? You know, because right. because at that point, so they closed on the purchase in 2018, but you know they were discussing it and went public with it a year, maybe a little more than a year in advance. I can't remember the exact, um, but the announcement of the deal to sell at this price and i think the ultimate number came out around 63 billion we'd have to go back and check it you know moved with share prices and things like that but um by that time the international agency for research on cancer had already declared that glyphosate was a probable human carcinogen they had already tied it to non-hodgkin lymphoma there had already been initial lawsuits filed by people in the us i could see very clearly maybe other people couldn't at that point I could see very clearly that Monsanto was getting out when the getting was good. You know, they knew there was this avalanche of litigation and potential liability coming down on their heads. And they were able, the executives of Monsanto, to collect very big checks and right off into the sunset and hand this huge liability over to Bayer. And I mean, that's exactly what happened. Bayer closed on the deal, gave Monsanto executives all their money in June of 2018. And in August of 2018, they lost their first trial over this roundup litigation. And the stock price of Bayer plunged immediately, wiping out billions of dollars in market capitalization. And they have struggled ever since 2018 to regain that investor confidence. And they've been sued by their investors. 
The Monsanto purchase has been dubbed like the worst corporate takeover in history by like the Wall Street Journal and different investor groups. You know, it's they ousted the um, CEO who orchestrated the Monsanto purchase. And Bayer is currently under pressure from an activist investor group to break up the company and basically sell it off for parts because the the, the litigation over Roundup has been so disruptive um, and so costly to bear. You know, at this point, they've agreed to pay roughly at least $15 billion in different in settlement and different maneuvers related to the Roundup litigation and Monsanto litigation overall. And they still haven't settled all the litigation in the U.S. They still have tens of thousands of cases. There's a trial here that starts tomorrow um, in St. Louis, which is was the home base for Monsanto, another roundup litigation um, case. And, you know, there's litigation ongoing in Australia. Uh, there's litigation in different places around the world. So I don't know, you know. Um, yes, Monsanto was the world's largest seed company. And yes, they had this huge, um, this weed killer herbicide platform. Um, so from that standpoint, it probably looked like a really good deal. Uh, I don't know that any investors right now would say it was a really good deal. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Is it? I mean, at the time, you could probably see that the writing was on the wall. Um, but I, I, I thought when I heard about it, that maybe there were, they had some sort of strategy in place that they knew all this was going to happen and they knew how to deal with it. But, you know, $15 billion is, is quite a lot of money, um, even for them. And it would suggest to me that if you're paying out in a class action, $15 billion, uh, damages for, um, you know, the effects of your product, then that product's probably not very safe. Um, you know, would one be safe to assume that if they have to pay that much in damages, that it's probably a good idea not to use it, not to use the roundup? Well, they say that the the settlement money, the money that they're paying out. Now, they they lost, you know, three trials and initially and were ordered to pay damages by juries. So that was against their will. And those verdicts were upheld through all appeals courts and that sort of thing. So they had to pay out that money. And then the additional, the billions that we're talking about is them voluntarily or through settlement discussions. And they say, you know, that they are not admitting any liability. They still maintain that there's nothing harmful um, when these products are used as directed that they don't cause cancer. So that continues to be their position. Um, they did say they were going to remove glyphosate products from the consumer market in the U.S. this year. But so far, we haven't really seen or heard much about that actually happening. So that's something I'm still wondering and waiting about. Um, but they did, even when they said they were doing that, they made the point that it would still be sold to farmers, you know, and professional operators. So yeah, their position is very much, it doesn't matter how much they've paid and it doesn't matter what the scientists say or what the juries say, this is a chemical that is safe that doesn't cause cancer is what they say. Mm. And from my understanding, the majority of the, the litigation that they're facing is uh, primarily around the development of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, are there are there any other 
um, conditions that have been, you know, closely linked or is it, is the focus primarily on non-Hodgkin's lymphoma? There have been, I mean, the scientific literature um, has sort of an array of things that it links glyphosate to, you know, and there's different, uh, you know, the weight of evidence would be different for different situations. You know, there's a something, a study that talks about acute myeloid, myeloid leukemia. More recently, more recently, um, they've been really oh, just kind of alarming findings from some studies that are ongoing in Italy, um, but they're not, you know, finalized yet. And, and certainly I don't know that they would be robust enough or replicated to say this is a known kind of um, condition, but these scientists are saying that they are finding that it affects, um, that it is an endocrine disruptor and that it affects the hormone levels and has some very adverse impacts on developing um, fetuses, you know, babies uh, who might be exposed to it. And they're also um, seeing sort of a disruption of the really important um, bacteria uh, in the in the gut, in the human gut, which could affect the immune system and, and a whole array of, of other health impacts. So I think what the scientists would say is we don't know the full extent of the impacts that this chemical could be having on human health, but we know it's commonly found in cereals and crackers and oatmeals and, you know, just a whole array of foods because it's so widely used. Um, and we know it's in water and we know it's in the air as well. Air samples have shown, you know, glyphosate. So, um, a lot of scientists are saying, we're just really trying to understand the human health impacts, but Back to your point, I think non-Hodgkin lymphoma was selected by the lawyers for litigation right. because the International Agency for Research on Cancer specifically talked about non-Hodgkin lymphoma and specifically highlighted studies that showed a connection between that specific type of disease. So the lawyers who brought the cases have focused on that rather than just grabbing because I know a whole lot of people out there are like, well, I have this kind of cancer or I have that or I have that, but they've limited it to non-Hodgkin lymphoma at this point for the litigation. Mm. And what are the primary exposure vectors for the average person um, you know, who's consuming these foods that that may have come in contact with, you know, Roundup spray during during their uh their harvest or their um their growing? Well, dermal, I mean, th that's what you're asking, sort of the route of exposure, right? Yeah, so how, how how is the average person exposed to this? How is it getting into their body? Yeah, I mean, I think if you, it depends on who you are, right, and what you do. If you're an applicator and, um, and you're spraying, like from a backpack sprayer, that would be one kind of potential exposure route. If you're a farmer and you're in a cab, you know, and you're spraying, then maybe your your route of exposure is more when you're mixing, you know, it, or maybe it's in the air from mist coming, you know, or that sort of thing. Um, if you're a backyard gardener and you spray it um, and you don't wear protective gloves or shoes or long pants, or, you know, maybe dermal exposure, you're probably getting it on your skin where it can soak into your, to your skin and get into your bloodstream. So there've been shown a whole sort of array of different um, routes. And then if you're eating food, 
with residues of glyphosate in it, um, you're being exposed that way as well. Um, it's been interesting to follow that, um, the whole dietary thing, because for so long in the U US, um, our regulators that track residues in food, that track pesticide residues in food, wouldn't test for glyphosate. They, they just wouldn't do it. They said it wasn't important or they didn't need to because they knew glyphosate was so safe and so it didn't matter. But there are legal limits um, as to what is allowed on food and they are different in Europe and they're different in the United States. I don't know what the legal limits are in Australia, but the US um, allows some of the highest uh, levels of glyphosate in food of many other countries. And what you can see going back through regulatory records is that Monsanto repeatedly would go to the EPA and request to let those lim those legal limits make them higher and higher and higher and higher because they knew these residues were getting into our foods. And the EPA, you see them saying yes over and over and just raising what that legal limit is uh, for glyphosate. Um, so we're now seeing, we've started to see, they've done some very limited surveys, um, our federal government has, to track glyphosate residues in foods and, and have found it, of course, um, but they still say it's not a problem because it's within these legal limits. Um, although I have some internal, I've written about these, I think, in my books, I have some internal documents that they didn't release publicly, um, but that I was able to get my hands on that talk about glyphosate levels that are, should be illegal, that would be illegal in Europe or other places that are yeah. so high. So... Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's pretty crazy. I I think I remember, um, after some of the first surveys were done, um, and then yeah, they I think they doubled or tripled the the um level that was acceptable, uh, and all of a sudden it looked like oh it's it's all fine. There's hardly any in there, um, so I mean it just speaks to the influence that they have on the policymakers. Um, I guess money money really talks. And um, that's something that um, you go into in quite a bit of depth in your books. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the food thing really resonated with me, I guess, because I'm not a farmer. You know, I don't I'm not a school groundskeeper. I don't spray Roundup for a living, but I do feed my kids cereal, you know, and oatmeal and vegetables and fruits and, and bread and things like that. And so knowing that these companies that Monsanto went to the EPA and said, we want to be able to have more and more and more of that in the food and the EPA saying, sure, that's fine. You know, the, what is the point of having these levels? And then seeing like, for instance, one of the emails um, from the food and drug administration inside, I remember I'll have to paraphrase, but uh, they were bringing food products in to test. One chemist was writing an email to another chemist at the FDA and said, I was, I'm bringing food in from my house to just test it for glyphosate. You know, they were doing some preliminary tests and he said, it's in everything. He said he found it in crackers and cereal and in granolas. He found it in everything. He said, the only thing he couldn't find glyphosate in at that time was broccoli. And that just always has stuck with me. 
Now, of course, they didn't publicize that. Um, that was something that I had to obtain um, myself. But, you know, so I guess we all should eat broccoli if we weren't <laughs> worried about privacy. So uh, you mentioned GMO foods before, which have been specifically engineered. The vast majority of GMOs uh, are specifically engineered so that they can be directly sprayed with Roundup and they don't die, unlike any other plant that would obviously um, die quickly. Um, so I, I suspect that those foods are going to be the ones that are the most laden with glyphosate residue. Um, but I'm also aware that there's a there's a practice of, even though that wheat is not genetically modified at the moment, um, that it is sprayed at the end of its growing period as a desiccant to help the harvest, um, to make the harvest easier to dry the wheat out. Um, is this a practice that's common across the world? Do you know, or is this, you know, something that's just happening in America? Definitely not just in America. Um, and I, I don't know about Australia. I believe they do use it in Australia as a desiccant, but I could be wrong. Um, I know in Canada, you know, it's been popular as a desiccant in more northern regions of the United States. Um, the way farmers explained it to me uh, was a desiccant could be really useful if you have sort of an uneven, you know, weather, temperature, um, moisture situation at the end of your growing season. And so different fields might be maturing at different levels, or you just, you want everything to even out and to dry out quickly. And so they use it not only on, on wheat and, but lentils and oats as a, as, um, is a crop that has, where you've seen a lot of use of glyphosate, uh, which I remember, uh, some reports a few years ago, tests that were run on baby food because oatmeal is used often, you know, to make baby food. And, um, you know, all of the different baby foods were found uh, to have all these glyphosate residues in it, which, you know, again, is very worrisome if you're a mother or a parent, um, at least mm. would be for me. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely. I know there was one survey that found the highest levels of residue in Canadian legumes, uh, chickpeas and lentils and whatnot. Um, so from uh, from your perspective, um, it's probably... I assume you you would think it's best to eat those types of foods organic and and do your best to avoid that exposure vector. Yeah, I mean, I think you know hummus, right? I love hummus um, made with chickpeas, but I I try to only buy organic hummus. Um, I I think it's a personal decision. I think everybody you know has their relative risk, you know, at at, at one place or another, but it's informed by a lot of different things that are all very personal and individualized. So, um, but for me, yeah, I mean, I try to feed my kids organic fruits and vegetables and foods because I want to lower the contaminant burden. If I can, I want to lower the pesticide burden. Um, it's not only glyphosate residues. I mean, these food and drug administration reports and USDA reports that we have here in the United States track you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different types of pesticides in food. And the reports that they put out, you know, are very thick and very detailed. And so you find a whole array of insecticides and herbicides and fung fungicides um, on 
apples and lettuce and spinach and, you know, virtually everything that you would expect to put down on your dinner plate. Um, you're going to have some level, if it was conventionally grown, you're going to be consuming pesticides, you know, with your lunch or your dinner. So what were some of the most alarming or surprising um, documents that you found in researching um, your books? I know, I know you got your hands on a lot of internal emails, um, you know, lots of stuff through the Freedom of Information Act um, that they obviously didn't, didn't want anyone to know about. Um, what were some standouts for you that, you know, really showed that there was a bit of corruption going on? Um. Well, yeah, for the corruption part, I mean, the emails um, about about residues in, in foods like really struck me as well. Like one FDA chemist found all this glyphosate in honey, um, even organic honey that he had gone out to stores around the region and, and purchased all of these different science samples of honey and brought it back to the FDA uh, and tested and found it in all this organic honey. And told his bosses about it and told them that they should report it. And the bosses basically told him, you know, not to worry about it. And they weren't going to do anything about it. And, and they didn't. Um, but, you know, really shocking stuff, I guess, that two things come to mind. One is when a different agency in the United States that was part of our health and human services, part of centers for disease control, um, that we refer to as the ATSDR, Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry. But um, they said in 2015 that they wanted to do a review of glyphosate um, for toxicity. And this is when IARC, the International Cancer Group, was also looking at it and had said that it was a probable human carcinogen. And you see through these emails and, and text messages that Monsanto went to the very head of the EPA Office of Pesticide Programs, this is our chief regulatory body, and went to them very directly, this individual, and said, we want that review. We don't think that ATSDR should do its review of glyphosate. Like, we don't want that to happen, and it shouldn't happen. It's going to be duplicative and just a waste of resources for the government, you know, and is there anything you can do about that, EPA? And you see the top EPA guy go to his second in command within like an hour of receiving this email. He basically hopped right to it and set in motion to do exactly what Monsanto wanted uh, and kill off this ATSDR review. And then you see another EPA official in other emails writing to Monsanto saying, if I can kill this, I should get a medal. Um, and he actually did kill it. Uh, and then you see you see them ghostwriting a scientific study. You see all of these emails where they spent three years working on this scientific study that was going to proclaim glyphosate to be so very safe. This was in the late 1990s and early 2000s. And they talk about regulate. We're going to give this to regulators around the world, you know, and everybody will see how safe it is. But we don't want anybody to know that we're doing it, that we're spending three years on this. We want it to look completely independent. And so all of this and all of these, the work and the editing and the rewriting and this and that, but they don't have any Monsanto employees' names on it at all because it has to look independent. And they celebrate when it's all done. 
they have a big celebration and they get everybody like commemorative shirts um, because they all did such a great job of this ghost written study. So that to me was shocking because it's just like arrogance and the depths of deception that this company would engage in. And there's many more examples of the ghost writing. But, you know, if it was truly a really, really safe chemical, why would you have to do that? Why would you have to deceive and ghostwrite scientific studies and pretend that independent scientists were saying it was safe when really you were the one saying it was safe? I don't, you know, the deception is something that I, I think you cannot argue over because it's laid out so blatantly in the internal documents. Yeah, that I think that's what I found most fascinating reading Whitewash was how orchestrated everything was. Um, you know, there were there were deliberate um, attempts to. Uh, I, I know in in the in Whitewash you speak about um, Peter Infante, who was heavily involved in the IARC's decision to name glyphosate a probable human carcinogen, um, and basically the the emails showing you know we need to. Um, we need to get get rid of him because he favors independent research rather than um, in industry funded research, and we and we just can't have that. And um, you know he was he was ousted, and they didn't even tell him he was still getting the emails. Um, but you know they they take this very very seriously uh, in making sure that the um, everything falls in their favor with with uh, regards to safety. So um, how would you go about? You know, obviously there are a lot of people out there who hear this and think, oh, well, that's, that can't be right. Because if it was truly unsafe, the government would protect us from it. You know, it just can't be right. Um, and, you know, you wind up looking like a conspiracy theorist very, very quickly when you suggest um, that perhaps Monsanto have been a little disingenuous. How would you <laughs> normally go about um, uh, going through a conversation like that? You know, I guess I don't even really have the energy anymore to do that because I feel like there's so much evidence out there. And, you know, my my both of my books, uh, my first one, Whitewash, is so heavily, you know, everything. We documented every single sentence pretty much, you know, and you can go and we have links and I put I put the Monsanto internal documents up on a website. They've been sent to US uh, UCSF documents library. They're available in many different places. So people can look at the documents themselves and they can see, they don't have to believe me or take my word for it. Um, you can see the company themselves talked, they use the word ghostwriting. They talked about the creation of scientific studies that looked like they were independent. Now that's, deception you know um i mean there's an email you know there's so many but there's another one that that uh, always resonated with me because he said it so clearly um it was a guy named jim vicini vicini uh, v-i-c-i-n-i in monsanto and this was on gmo crops not on glyphosate but they were trying he was trying to write a paper about how you know great gmo crops were but he but he wanted some independent scientist name on it instead of his, because he works for Monsanto. And he says in this email, you know, it's it's pretty hard for me to find somebody, you know, to put their name on it when they didn't actually write it. Like, it's hard for me to find somebody who's willing to put their name on something they didn't write. 
Um, but it certainly gives us more credibility, you know, if it looks independent. Um, they created all these different front groups um, that they are secretly paying. Um, we found money trails to groups that they help fund, like Genetic Literacy Project and American Council on Science and Health, um, that they pay to, again, look like they're independent voices. You wouldn't need to do that if your product was really safe, right? Yeah. Would you? Um, mm. I don't know. So in writing these books, you've pretty much been going after, you know, multi-billion dollar companies. Have you ever felt like you might have a target on your back? Um, you know, have you been the target of any um, sort of attack? Uh, not physical attack, uh, thank God, uh, but certainly reputationally, yes. I mean, these front groups, as I said, these front groups that we know that they funded, that we have documentation that they funded, um, you know, have written dozens and dozens and dozens of articles about, you know, what a terrible person I am, what a corrupt person I am, what a liar I am, you know, all sorts of things like that. They've targeted other journalists as well, other scientists, um, anybody who has brought forward information that is not favorable to Monsanto, you know, they they come back at you. But again, they want it. They don't really want it to look like it's coming from Monsanto. Um, they want it to look like it's coming from an independent third party. Uh, you know, for my book, Whitewash, they had a whole strategic plan that they developed and a spreadsheet uh, that they put together uh, with the Carrie Gillum book project. I think I'd have to go look it back up what they headlined mm -hmm. their spreadsheet, but you know, and it assigned duties to all these different people um, as to how to try to discredit me, discredit the book, engage third parties, bring in a consulting firm, you know, get negative reviews posted on Amazon that look like they're coming from regular people and not wow. from Monsanto. Um, you know, it's a machine. <laughs> it's a giant machine. And it's not just Monsanto, um, you know, we I'm working on some stuff now involving Paraquat and a company called Syngenta. And I, I don't know if what I'm seeing there is worse or better. I, you know, it's, or it's definitely just as bad. I mean, <laughs> the, the deceit, um, the deception, the things that they knew to be true about the health impacts of their product and you compare that to what they were saying on their websites or in their in their um, public notices, and it's completely different. And they were hiding. There's there's literally just document after document where this company is hiding its own scientists' work that was finding harmful impacts of of their own product, and they hide that from the EPA and outwardly lie to the EPA. Um, about what their scientists are finding. So, you know, that's, I don't know what to yeah. say, but there's a lot of evidence that the chemical companies are not, are not being forthcoming about the dangers of their products. Yeah. I, I think that's probably the most upsetting thing is that they've probably known for decades. Um, you know, I know, um, speaking to um, Stephanie Seneff, um, uh, her work with Anthony Samsel, uh, they've been looking through all of the old, you know, studies from Monsanto in the 1980s that they never published. 
Um, and it seems like they knew all of these problems were happening back in the 80s. They knew um, that glyphosate wasn't breaking down. They knew that it was being stuck in the body uh, and they just never published it. And it's only through, you know, a few people that have really pursued um, these old documents through the Freedoms of Information Act that they've got their hands on these. Um, Yeah, it's just, it's really upsetting that despite the fact that they know all of these problems are going on, they've um, continued. Um, Oh, yeah. Some of the best, for whitewash, some of the best documents that I got were from the EPA and and was from this really old archive that went back to when the EPA started basically in the 1970s and you could track communications and and that very early foundational study that Monsanto gave the EPA that I call the 1985 mouse study but that's not you know what it was called but um you know that was the pivotal study because it they gave it to the EPA. The EPA scientists looked at it and said, this causes rare tumors, you know, in the animals. This looks like this could be oncogenic or could be a cancer-causing substance. And Monsanto fights them and comes back and says, no, you or your scientists are evaluating this incorrectly. You know, let us tell you how you should evaluate it. And this goes on for years and they hire this other guy and he comes in and he tells the EPA he's found this other tumor in the control group. And so it changes the statistical significance and they bring in a scientific advisory panel and they tell Monsanto to redo the study. And Monsanto says, heck no, we're not going to redo the study. I mean, it goes on and on. And eventually the EPA just caves to Monsanto and says, "Okay, you don't have to redo the study and we're going to agree with you. We're going to override our own scientists. And agree with you and say it doesn't look like it causes cancer. And on that final document in the early 1990s, that set the stage for where we are today because the EPA is taking the exact same position today. And it's noteworthy that when that final report was signed, several EPA scientists refused to sign it, um, refused to put their names on it because they felt that it was so wrong. And you know, still to this day. We just had a federal court uh, last summer tell the EPA that they were evaluating glyphosate incorrectly, that they were not following their own rules in looking at the science um, about cancer causation and ordering the EPA to follow its rules (laughs) and properly evaluate the science. So um, it's, it's definitely not the one thing I've learned over all of these decades um, of work here is that it is not true that our regulators are there to protect us. Um, They are in name, I think. um, But what I've seen over and over and over again is that corporate um, protection comes over public protection. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's disappointing, but it's kind of just the way things are at the moment. you know, my grandparents were grain farmers. Um, and, uh, I, my, I remember my mom telling me about when they first started spraying and it was just this miracle. Um, they, they could grow bigger crops. They were getting bigger yields. I think she tells this story about one year, every farmer in the town, um, you know, was new, new to the sprays and they got this one year, they got the biggest crop they'd ever got. And their local Ford dealer sold the most 
cars of any dealership in the whole state because yeah. everyone went out and bought a car that year after their harvest. So they really thought, and they, you know, these aren't bad people. They're just, they really thought this was the best thing um, because they, they were no longer, you know, hoping and praying that their crops were going to be all right. They had a little bit more safety and, and they could be a little bit more, um, you know, it was a bit more reliable and, and they could, they didn't have to struggle financially as much as they used to. But, you know, after, after, you know, years of use, it gets a little bit more difficult. And of course, it's, it's extremely difficult to stop using after you've been using it for a while. And I think that's something that, you know, I'm really interested in is how do you get away from this system that we're using at the moment? Um, how do we get back to using more organic, more regenerative, you know, no-till systems? I mean, you've been working with the farmers. W what do you see is, is, the, is the way out of this current system that we're yeah. using? I think, I mean, you're right. It's the, the farmers, when they start to back away from this or be concerned, you know, it's because they're seeing it's not as effective for them anymore, right? And they're also understanding or seeing the evidence of the environmental impacts, you know, the the impacts on pollinators, you know, biodiversity, the health of the soil, um, the sterility of the soil that, you know, you're, you're causing when you use this chemical over and over and over and over again. And um, so what I've seen in the United States and, <clears throat> and to farmers I've talked to in some other countries is that they really are just, they've decided that they aren't, the benefit is, is no longer outweighing the cost, or they see that the benefit is not going to be outweighing the cost in the near future, right? They're looking over at the long term and they're deciding that they're going to just bite the bullet and do it. And you're right, it's not easy at all. But, you know, there are groups of farmers here in the U.S. that are banding together and um, sharing ideas and techniques and, uh, you know, trying to deploy more of these traditional techniques, you know, rotating crops, which is not novel, right, certainly, but having a really aggressive and very strategic crop rotation and cover crops um, and other sorts of strategies that they're finding, or they say, you know, if you do it in a really focused way and a data-oriented way, which is what they're trying to do, I mean, they're measuring everything down to, you know, what's our row spacing, you know, and when are we planting this cover crop and what are we, you know, and, and, and what is our rotation to get the most nutrition back in the soil, right. And have the most, you know, the best insect protection or the best weed protection without using chemicals and, and they're collecting data points and, um, and letting the data guide them on that. And it's very exciting uh, to watch how that's coming together. And, and of course there are people lobbying for more government subsidies and support for farmers who are going this route, because in the US, the primary support of government, you know, taxpayer funded support is for farmers using chemicals. It's for these conventional types of practices um, that, really we know are harming the environment um, as well as human health. So I think it's a whole, you know, it's consumers need to decide what they care about when they buy their food. You know, people need to tell their elected 
lawmakers and representatives, you know, where they should be directing taxpayer dollars. And farmers need to think more about the long term as opposed to just the next harvest. Um, right? Yeah. See what I, gets us. I don't I think, know. I think grassroots, um, uh, like Zen Honeycutt says, you know, it starts with mothers. You know, um, mothers have the power to really change all of this. Um, uh, only only when the mothers say yes can can things really happen um and hopefully um hopefully that's you know i i've seen really great work with farmers footprint as well um in the states and here um it seems like the organic movement is is happening you know it's um more people are buying organic um more farmers are realizing that there's a demand and they can actually profit um from an organic um agriculture system um hopefully we see more regenerative as well that's what i'd really like to see um i guess before i let you go i wanted to know you know you're you're an investigative journalist i mean your whole career has been centered around finding the truth and you know not not letting anything get get in the way of that how have you perceived um you know, the events of the last few years from your lens as an investigative journalist and, you know, all of this stuff around, you know, fake news and, and you know, it's trying to navigate the media space with, you know, journal one journalist says one thing, one journalist says, uh, you know, something completely different. Um, this must hit a little bit differently for you because this is sort of, um, you know, this is your career, this is your profession. Yeah. Um, so how have you seen the events of the last few years? Yeah, I, I mean, I find it deeply troubling that we, I don't feel that I can trust, or I, I have a different lens now looking at trusted media sources, I guess. And I feel so sorry for all of us that, you know, we have, we're losing, I think, an easy way to discern what is true and what is not true, right? Or, or maybe not even easy, but you're right. I mean, there's so many different forces out there that are now trying to be information providers to consumers and others. And, and they're driven by forces that are not the traditional journalistic endeavor that I, you know, was trained in and, and grew up in and have, have tried to hold my whole career, which is, you know, you follow the facts and the facts are what the facts are and you lay them out and, you give people the documentation if you can't, you know, you lay out the facts and then the dust settles however it settles. And, um, but there's so much now that is, um, you're right. I mean, it's just, it's fake news. It's misinformation. And it's coming not only from weird, random places on the internet, but from, you know, high level government agencies or regulatory bodies, or, you know, it's just, it's pervasive and it's all seems to be because we've become so divided and so partisan and it's about power and money and who's going to have the power and who's going to have the money and who's going to have the influence. And it just makes my head hurt and it makes me sad. And so I don't have any good answer for you, I guess. Um, except I just feel like if I can keep trying to do what I do and be factual about things and hopefully others, can do the same. I mean, people, you know, attacked me before whitewash came out. Um, so many when it was coming out or 
you know, at Reuters, the industry really tried to discredit me and people were doubting me. And when whitewash came out, I had a lot of reporters and other people say, yeah, but you know, is this really true? Like, how do we know this is really true? I'm like, look at all the documents that go with this book. Look at all of the reference materials. And then as more started happening, and then as the first round of trials started happening, and then all of these internal documents, more and more of them came to light. Then all these people were like, oh, wow, like everything you've been saying was true. How does that make you feel? Like, well, I always knew it was true. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, but it took people a while to catch up. So I guess I do have that hope that, you know, eventually truth wins out. Eventually enough light is shined down upon events that we know the truth, but, you know, it shouldn't take years and years. Mm, so. I'm, I'm an optimist too. Uh, I really think we'll get there. I just hope it doesn't take very long. Um, so what are you working on at the moment? And, and you know, what, what's the future look like for you? Uh, well, at the moment, I mean, I've got, I'm working on more documents. Oh, you can't see it. There it is. <laughs> more documents um, on this. These are on Paraquat, internal corporate documents. Um to try to write another installment, uh, writing for The Guardian. Also, I have a news outlet called The New Lead. Please encourage people to go look at The New Lead. Um, L-E-D-E is the way we spell it. It's a journalistic term, but thenewlead.org, um, nonprofit little news outlet associated with Environmental Working Group. And so writing there and um, trying to just keep finding stuff that is useful to our knowledge about human health and environmental health and talking to people like you. So I'll make sure I put links to um, everything uh, that you're involved in. Um, okay. And also you were involved in um, the, the documentary that's coming out soon into the weeds. Um, can you tell us to, to, you know, what, what how were you involved in that? And um, you know, when, when is that coming out? Yeah, gosh. And I don't know, screening in Australia, it's been, we've done screenings in Canada. We've done some in the US. We just were in Europe where we screened it in Brussels and talked to the European Parliament about it. Um, my official title, I guess, or in the credits of it, I'm called Story Consultant um, for Into the Weeds, but it's um, put together by an award-winning documentary filmmaker in Canada, uh, Jennifer Buckwall. And um, she, it's it's remarkable. She took my two books. She bought the rights to Whitewash and the Monsanto Papers and um, had me sort of introduce her to Lee Johnson, who was the very first plaintiff in the round of trial and uh, take her, you know, through my reporting. And then she's done a lot, you know, of her own, obviously, investigative work and just created this really, really remarkably beautiful and powerful film about what I, about my book, the Monsanto Papers, about Lee Johnson's story of his fight against cancer and his fight against Monsanto. And then the bigger implications of what I wrote in Whitewash about the impacts on, you know, the environment and, and biodiversity and pollinators and and that sort of thing. So um, it's a great film. And yeah, it, it's supposed to be, I think we've got a deal for it to be streaming and it's going to be on some big screens um, across the US. So, but I'm not familiar with the, where where it's going to be in Australia and when. 
we'll we'll figure it out. I'll make sure I I'll make sure I get a link to it um in the description. Uh and I'll make sure I'm going to watch it myself uh as well. Um I won't keep you any longer because I know you're <laughs> probably very busy, a lot busier than me, that's for sure. Um I can't thank you enough for taking some time to speak with me. Um I really hope more people um get introduced to your work and and start to take this a little more seriously. Uh I think um you know I think the word is catching on and and books like yours are are really leading the way I think in in really giving it a solid foundation and taking it out of that conspiracy theory area and really um giving it a solid foundation to stand on. So thank you so thank much you. for all the work that you've done and um I can't wait to see um what you keep writing. Okay. Well, thank you. And thank you for the work that you do to illuminate this sort of stuff. I really appreciate that and and um thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this one. If you'd like to support Kerry's work, I've left links to her various platforms in the description. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on Spotify and YouTube, and you can leave up to a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This is a simple no-cost way to support my work and help me reach more listeners. Please feel free to leave comments on my YouTube channel as I do try to read through as many as I can. I've also put links to all my social media platforms in the episode notes if you'd like updates about the podcast, information about health, or if you'd just like to reach out to me. Thanks again, everyone. Take care.